The following sermon is brought to you by Cornerstone Baptist Church. For more information on our teaching and preaching ministry, visit us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. Good morning. Uh, Please stand with me as I read the text this morning. And it's going to be Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So all this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the Lord through the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. Then Joseph, being aroused from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took to him his wife and did not know her till she had brought forth her firstborn son. And he called his name Jesus. Thank you. Uh, Please be seated. Join with me now as I pray. Uh, Father in heaven, thank you for this time of gathering on your day, the Christian Sabbath. We praise and worship you as we have already and now in the ministry of your word. We pray that you would grant grace and bless this time, uh, sanctify your people as we gather around your infallible, inerrant, authoritative word. Uh, Amen. There is a handout, it's also on uh, an app if you have access to that, but this morning, from these verses, the sermon is dealing with the birth of Christ, and this morning's sermon's titled, The Birth of Christ by the Spirit, and this evening it'll be The Birth of Christ According to Scripture, and that's coming from the text. But before we go into Matthew, let me introduce some of where we are in context. From the beginning, God has glorified his name in creation and providence. The whole earth is full of his glory. All things exist, live, and move, and have their being in him. And at creation on the sixth day, God created man, male and female, in the image of God he created them. From the beginning, his will to glorify himself is seen in Scripture. 
He will glorify his name through holy image bearers, among other things, but namely image bearers who were made in his image. And having decreed the beginning from the end, the fall of man came through the sin of the first Adam. And death spread to all men which, of which we are partakers. However, God did not only determine to manifest his just, just nature through the first Adam, but that first Adam was only but a shadow and a copy of the last Adam, of whom God the Father would send in the fullness of time. This last Adam would perfectly accomplish God's will, even to the measure of God's infinite wisdom and goodness. This last Adam is none other than God himself, namely God the Son, the second person of the blessed Trinity, who is co-eternal and co-equal with the Father in spirit. And the Son most willingly came in time and became a man that he might glorify God as mediator and savior. As God's perfect image bearer, ruling over creation in his name. In Matthew chapter 1, 18 through 25, we witness the coming of his son into the world. Before we look more closely at the chapter 1, let me remind you of the context of Matthew. Simply, Matthew is one of the four gospels. The whole Bible testifies to Jesus Christ, but the Old Testament prepares and promises him to come through prophecy and typology. However, remember the purpose of the Gospels, which clearly reveal Christ's life, ministry, death, and resurrection, so that you may trust in him for eternal life. We see what was promised being fulfilled with his coming. And specifically, Matthew focuses on how Christ fulfills the Old Testament and is God's promised Davidic king. In chapters 1, in chapter 1, verses 1 through 17, if you will remember, Matthew reveals the genealogy of Christ and how he is of the legitimate line of the promises of God and how he comes from Judah and Abraham and David according to the Old Testament. Now, in verses 18 through 25, Matthew's going to reveal how Christ was conceived and born. And in believing, you may know who he truly is and what he came to do and have eternal life in him. This deals with the greater doctrine of the incarnation. So I want to make an introduction to that doctrine. The incarnation is a fundamental doctrine of Christianity. In other words, to deny the incarnation and the truth revealed in this text this morning is to not believe in God's only begotten Son. And if you do not believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh, you will die in your sins. Jesus says that in John 8. I say this, that those among us who may not truly believe will know that they are deceived. And then turn from their sin of unbelief and trust Christ biblically for their salvation. This doctrine has been attacked from the beginning, and we see it even in Christ's day. There were Jews who believed Christ was born out of fornication in John 8. There were Jews even in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth that said, Is this not the carpenter's son? Where did he get all these works? 
People have denied his deity from the beginning. So as an outline for the verses we're covering this morning, which is from verses 18 to 21, um, first we have the timing of Christ's birth and how that reveals that his, Christ, that his birth is of the Spirit. It's of God and not of men. And two, that the announcement or the message of Christ's birth reveals that he is born of the Spirit. The, the text is laser-focused on revealing this, that Christ was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a virgin womb. That's the main point. It's that Jesus is able to save your soul. He is able to save you from your sins because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a womb. Among many other reasons, but namely that's this text is bringing out through Matthew. And the main application coming from John, trust Christ for your salvation. You know, he wrote 1 John that they might, those who know him might know that they believe. But John wrote his gospel, which is another gospel, Matthew's another gospel. He said that you might believe. And one of the purposes of the gospels is that you might come to saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's the main application. Trust Christ in seeing his birth. And worship him in seeing his condescension. Worship him in awe and humility as the God-man. Now let's look at the text specifically. I'm going to read 18 to 21. Now the birth of Christ was as follows. After his mother Mary was betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit, and she will bring forth a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Immediately for some of us, Maybe most of us, what jumps out as an unknown or an unfamiliar word is betrothed. So I want to give you some context from verse 1. The main point, first point, is that the timing of Christ's birth reveals that he is of, born of the Spirit, conceived of the Spirit. He is uh, not of Adam. And first we see a betrothed virgin found pregnant. Now, why say timing? And how, what does a betrothal mean? I say timing, if you look, it says, this, this is Matthew, he says, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. And then he says, after Mary was betrothed, there's a, a temporal statement there. And then he says, before they came together, another temporal statement. The, the point here he's making is there's something significant about the timing of the pregnancy of Mary. So, first of all, it was after Mary was betrothed. What does it mean to be betrothed to someone? We don't practice betrothals today, uh, but a betrothal is a lot like an engagement, but is more serious and has legal ramifications. 
So the Old Testament law treated betrothal as creating a legal state of marriage with attendant possibilities of adultery, divorce, and widowhood, just like you have with marriage. Despite this, though, during the betrothal, the wife continued to be the responsibility of her father for a maximum of 12 months. So if a young woman who knows that she's going to marry someone and that person's going to marry her, they can enter into a betrothal because it might give her time to come into her uh, womanhood. Um, and it was prior to a marriage ceremony. In this interim period, sexual relations were not considered proper. Though no doubt they did occur at times. So it was a betrothal practice in their culture. It was biblical too. It's in Deuteronomy 22. We want to look at that. So the timing is she has not yet had the wedding ceremony and she's still under her father's headship and yet is in a marriage betrothal to Joseph. And she has not come to know him intimately. No sexual intercourse has occurred. Consider for a second, what would have it been like had she got pregnant before a betrothal? There's no father because later the Lord is, the angel is going to say, name him. And that's for Joseph to name him that meaning a father would take that place in Jewish culture. So God isn't saying he's the father, but is putting that responsibility into his hands by saying, name him. But if it was before a betrothal, there would be no father to name him. If it was after a betrothal, it would not be as clear that she was a virgin. God's timing was precise. We know that already, but we get to see it clearer when we see texts like this. And the point is, is that she was a virgin. It's supernatural what's occurring. That's one of the points of this birth. The birth of our Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. The only birth like it is that it be a sign for all to know. That was what Isaiah said. It will be for a sign. And what are signs for? Remember when Jesus fed the multitude with bread? It was meant that they might see that he is the bread of life. That we might see him as our savior. As our redeemer. Believe him. So that's a betrothed virgin found pregnant, but a betrothed husband confounded. So in verse 19, then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not wanting to make her a public example, was minded to put her away secretly. Turn with me to Deuteronomy 22 briefly. I want you to see Old Testament law dealing with having relations with somebody because Joseph wasn't convinced that she did not have some kind of relations with another man. That's why he was 
confounded because she's pregnant. So what did the law say when a betrothed woman had had sexual relations with another man? Verse 22, if a man is found lying with a woman married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city, and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, so you shall put away the evil from among you. But if a man finds a betrothed young woman in the countryside and the man forces her and lies with her, and the only, then only the man who, lie, who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. There is in the young woman no sin deserving of death. For just as when a man rises against his neighbor and kills him, even so is this matter. For he found her in the countryside, and, and the betrothed young woman cried out, but there was no one to save her. So what you can see from this, uh, I, I didn't finish reading, uh, but is that the law was severe in dealing with someone who has had a sexual relations with not the person that they're betrothed to. So Joseph's a just man, and he's thinking at a time when this, this has never occurred in history. It's the virgin birth of Christ. And it's likely, uh, I'm certain of it, that... Uh, well, I know Mary already knew why she was pregnant because an angel uh, was sent to tell her that you will be overshadowed, that you will conceive. And she even said in Luke 1, 34, how can, a, how can I if I've never known a man? The Bible couldn't be more clear that she was a virgin. How can I be pregnant if I don't? That's the way it works. And that, but he was saying, you will, future tense verbs were used, you will conceive. But when the angel's talking to Joseph in a dream, he's saying, that which is conceived in her, erist, past. So the visit to Joseph's coming after the visit to Mary. So Mary already knew. But Joseph is now finding out through, it doesn't say the means, but it does say before they came together, she was found. She was found. Literally find something. He found out. And he may have heard from her. I don't see why she would not tell him. She was not forbidden. But it still was of such a nature, supernatural, and with where he is in his weakness, he did not believe it. To the point where he was intending in his mind, almost in a determined way, to put her away secretly. But because he was a just man, the way that he was going to put her away colored the way that he was going to do that. So he's a just man. So being a just man, a righteous man, it colors the way that he's going to put her away. He could make it public, but instead he's going to give her a written document and a witness and make it private.
This is why he is confounded. It's obvious from the text. Later, the angel comes and says, do not be afraid. So he has fear. When he, every time he approaches the thought of, okay, I'm going to move forward with, with marriage, he gets afraid. And yet, at the same time, he doesn't want her to suffer great shame. He didn't want to make a public example of her. So, it was in that context, going into the next point, that the spirit or that the angel comes. But let me ask you before we go to the next point. Does the Bible not make it extremely clear that Mary was a virgin? If you look at Luke 1, 34... Then Mary said to the angel, how can this be since I do not know a man? And then read 38 for something of her character. Then Mary said, behold, the maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. <laughs> She's re- she rejoices in faith. So what's her character like? She has a holy character and she's a virgin. It could not be more clear that her pregnancy is not from man, from a man. How did she conceive then? Doesn't it take like a Y or an X and an X or a Y and an X and the man supplies the the, the Y chromosome? And it's not like myths where you have uh, idea, ideas and mythology that say gods come, false gods come and indwell men and copulate with another woman and then she has a deified child. She was a virgin. There is a mystery there, but we know that the Holy Spirit was the agent the cause and the means of her conceiving. Behold the glory of God in this sign. You know, it seems strange to us that God should conceive a human this way, his son, the body he had prepared for him. But, uh, it's only serving in contrast to every other birth in history to show something that God is communicating through that sign. Because he could create all humans the other way around if he wanted. There's no, the laws that exist, are they are stable because he has chosen them to be stable. Gravity is only stable because God has chosen it to always behave that way and he holds it that way. So why, why make everybody born this way and then one person born this way? It's to manifest something. It's to reveal his glory. It's to say, this is my son. Amen. Believe in Christ based on the biblical witness. Let this astound you. 
Uh, let's go to the next verse. The message of Christ's birth. So we move from the timing, and you see how the timing of that communicates of the Spirit. Because it was a virgin while she's betrothed. And we see a just man responding just like a, a person would respond if a virgin had been uh, conceived, pregnant. He doesn't believe it. It just goes to show it's supernatural. So that's the timing is key for revealing that the birth of Christ was of the Spirit, of the power of God. Now, the message of Christ's birth also reveals that it was of the Spirit. So what does the angel say when he comes to comfort him? And in verse 20 it says, But while he thought about these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take to you Mary, your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. So the angel of the Lord comforts him. He tells him, son of David, and there's another affirmation that the genealogy already made clear, but the angel's revealing it through the communication to Joseph that Joseph is of the line of David, which is going to be one of the lines given of Christ. But in doing that, he's comforting him, but really the comfort comes from his commandment or his exhortation, subjunctive. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Don't fear to take her. Why would he say that? Because that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. There you have the message, the announcement. You have the timing which reveals it, and now you have just a very clear, explicit message or announcement from, a, from an angel. And she shall bring forth the Son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It was while he pondered these things that God sent his angel. There was a fear he had. But God, one of his purposes, and he does this with his people, not in the same mode or way, but he, he is the unchanging God and he is the God of all comforts. And he is now comforting one of his own, Joseph, and how is he doing it? Through extraordinary means, in a dream. He's asleep. It says he wakes up in verse 24. So he's not like visions. He's dreaming. But he gets a clear communication from an angel in his dream. And God's, one of the purposes was to comfort Joseph by exhorting him not to be afraid and giving the reason why. And it's here I want to pause now that it has been explicitly stated. The man Christ Jesus, who lived about 2,000 years ago in Israel, was truly and fully a man, both body and soul. In the 1689, it says, He was with all the essential properties and common infirmities of man's nature, yet without sin being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the Scriptures. 1 John 4, 3. I'll read that in your hearing. It just 
talks about him believing not that he came in the flesh. It says, every spirit that confesses that Jesus has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus came, has come in the flesh, is not of God. And there are some on the other side. They will aim to maintain that Jesus is God, but then they will say, he's not a man. But here, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. And if someone denies the incarnation, it's to deny God, not of God. God also on the divinity of Christ, our confession. The Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him who made the world. Of one substance, one nature, who upholds and governs all things that he made. He's eternal and equal. Romans 9.5 says that. I'm wanting you to, to hear an, a reminder of the affirmation of both the humanity and the deity of Jesus Christ. It says, <clears throat> Of whom are the fathers and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. He came according to the flesh. Who is, overall, the eternally blessed God? Amen. In the Nicene Creed, if you want to know that not that we look to creeds for our basis, but in creeds and confessions, we see good most of the time when we look at good ones, systematic theology and belief statements. And it's important to know too that this is the church history's uh, understanding that the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity being very, I'm sorry, I believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, born of the Father before all ages, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, co-substantial, consubstantial with the Father, through him all things were made. For us men and for our salvation, he came down from heaven and by the Holy Spirit was incarnate in the Virgin Mary and became man. The Apostles' Creed. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Have you ever thought, well, why was it necessary? It was necessary not just for prophecy as if God is sovereign and must maintain his prophecies and promises to fulfill in time. That's true. God is unchanging and his faithfulness is revealed. But is there more as to the necessity of the virgin birth? It's so critical. Why? It was necessary, but because for our salvation, we needed God to become man, to save us. And it was necessary for the son to add to himself humanity which was unstained and unaffected by the first Adam's guilt. Can 
you look at uh, Hebrews 7, 26. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's. For this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He was holy, harmless, and undefiled. If he had been born... Under the headship of Adam, he would not be undefiled. It was necessary that he come as a man, but also a man that is not underneath the headship of the covenant with Adam. In Romans 5, if you look there briefly, Verse 12, therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men, all men throughout all time, all over all the face of the earth today, death has spread to them all and they are all stained and defiled. There is none good, no, not one. There is none righteous, no, not one. But one came who was not of Adam. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even of those who had not sinned, according to the likeness of the transgression of Adam, who was a type of him who was to come. But the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many die, much more the grace of God and the gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded to many. All glory be to God for his condescending holy love, for his triune name manifested in this great inestimable salvation. You know, I read those confessions and you've heard them before. Uh, We tend to think we know that one. And you may know that some of those words were familiar to you. And even, but if I said you don't know it, you would maybe even acknowledge, you're right, I don't know it like I should. It doesn't convict my soul and humble me before God. It doesn't bring me joy and gratitude like I know it should, seeing the God man or God become man for me. You may even be able to say that, right? And you still, we still don't know. Even with those acknowledgments, as if somehow we know we don't know. It doesn't still yet drive you to your knees in praise and in worship. And I'm not trying to uh, bring any false guilt. What I want to elevate is that this is glorious. And it's very easy for you not to see well. 
even the way that you ought to see it. But even if you're perfected, just men made perfect, and you enter into the intermediate state, you do know it as you ought to know it, but you still don't know it. You meet the ought to now, but you're still finite. And it will be for you in all eternity to discover what it meant for God the Son to become a man and be your mediator in heaven. Herman Bavink said, It is completely incomprehensible to us how God can reveal himself and to some extent extent make himself known in created beings. Eternity in time. Immensity in space. Infinity in finite. Immutability in change. Being in becoming. The all, as it were, in that which is nothing. This mystery cannot be comprehended. It can only be gratefully acknowledged. You'll never get your arms around it, but you can touch it. If God will be so gracious as to grant you faith to see it rightly. But mystery and self-contradiction are not synonymous. So even though it's a mystery doesn't mean it's a, a contradicting truth. That was an aside just to hit on the glory of that text that we read just last read which says that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit now the angel doesn't just comfort him with that reason where did the child come from but he also commands him he makes an announcement and he commands him in the announcement he says and she shall bring forth a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he shall save his people from their sins In the naming of the son, Joseph would be accepting the role of a father customarily. So God is, through this angel, encouraging and commanding Joseph to now take her to himself, not knowing her until the birth, and to become a steward as a father of the Son of God. Jesus. Why was his name Jesus? Think about God's valuation of names in the Bible. All the names that we have of God, Elohim. They're very significant. They always indicate something about God's nature, something about God's uh, an attribute or some, uh, a work of God. He's the God that does this kind of a work. The Lord, our banner. He's naming people in history. And here, what name do we, is given to the Son of God become man? It's Jesus Jesus, Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew name Joshua. Yeshua, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, but I'm trying to follow this. Yeshua is the Hebrew word Joshua, 
And the Greek form of that is Jesus. And in common etymology, this was related to the word in Hebrew, which means save and salvation. Name him salvation. Give him the name salvation. What is it that salvation saves from? It says it in the text. You shall name him salvation because. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins. It doesn't say he will attempt to or he, in order that he might. It says that he will save his people from their sins. First of all, it says that he will. It is a prophecy, if you want to call it that. It is a statement. It comes in the indicative mood. So it's a fact. And what that highlights to you is the sovereignty of God. The, the one who has sent the Son into the world is the Father. And no one is able to snatch his people out of his hand. And the one who came into the world is God the Son. And no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. And the one who conceived him in the Spirit and prepared the body for him is the Spirit. And no one is able to snatch them out of his hand. He will save his people. It will be done with a mighty outstretched arm. It will be powerful. And all those who he foreknew will be glorified. And he won't save them merely looking at the text from condemnation and judgment. From the text, that's what a lot of our culture wants to focus on when they talk about salvation is salvation from judgment, hell, and uh, the consequences of sin. The real evil is what brought about the justice of God. It's the sin. That's what we need salvation from. That's the cause of the problem. And God goes right to the heart. He always goes to the heart. He's going to save his people from their sins. They won't anymore be guilty of their sins. They will not anymore have the dominion of their sin over their life. And they will no longer even have the presence or uh, sinful nature in their heart. They will have no sin. That which the devil sought to put between God and man in the garden, God says, I will put between you and the woman's seed. And the only way that there can be an enmity between the woman's seed and the serpent is by restoration to God and dealing with the sin. Turn with me to First uh, John. I want to stop here for a moment and let's, let's remember and be reminded from the Scriptures as to this purpose of salvation. It was read this morning as well, but 
I want us to remind ourselves from 4, 1 John 4, 9 through 11. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us. God's love comes toward his people. And explain that God has sent his only begotten son into the world. Incarnation. And now we have a purpose. What's the purpose of the incarnation? You should never think of the incarnation in isolation. It's distinct. But you should always remember it in its proper context. It was in order that we might live through him. It's not merely a sign to just manifest God's power. It comes with more. It comes with a, a very clear purpose. I'm here in love to save you. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. That's talking about the Father. The Father loved us. The Father foreknew us. And as I said earlier, if he foreknew, he will glorify. And what we see in time through his Son is he sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And that's an application. If you meditate on and prayerfully consider and apprehend by faith this truth of the condescending love of God seen in your salvation, Jesus, it ought you to lead you to love others. In the Heidelberg Catechism, it says, Since then, by the righteous judgment of God, we deserve temporal and eternal punishment. Is there no way by which we may escape that punishment and be again received into favor? Answer, God will have his justice satisfied, and therefore we must make this full satisfaction either by ourselves or by another. Next question. Can we ourselves then make this satisfaction? By no means. But on the contrary, we daily increase our debt. Can there be, can there be found anywhere one who is a mere creature able to satisfy for us? None. For first, God will not punish any other creature for the sin which man has committed. That's why blood of bulls and goats cannot satisfy the justice of God. It's the animal. And further, no mere creature can sustain the burden of God's eternal wrath against sin so as to deliver others from it. No one can sustain the burden of God's wrath. So, what sort of a mediator and deliverer then must we seek for? We must seek for one who is very man and perfectly righteous and yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also very God. Why must he be very man and also perfectly righteous? Because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should likewise make satisfaction for sin and one who is himself a sinner cannot satisfy for others. We saw that from Hebrews 7. 
the old priesthood could not be a lasting eternal priesthood. It cannot satisfy for sin. Not merely because of the animals that are supplied, but the priests themselves have to offer up for themselves. How can they possibly satisfy for others if they can't even satisfy for themselves? That's why we need a perfectly righteous Savior. Why must he be, why must he in one person be also very God? That he might, by the power of his Godhead, sustain in his human nature the burden of God's wrath and might obtain for, for and restore to us righteousness and life. We need the power of his Godhead to sustain his human nature the burden of God's wrath to make satisfaction for us. Who then is this person? Our Lord Jesus Christ, who of God has made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Turn with me to Matthew 20. I'm wanting to remind you of these truths and to uh, show you biblically why Christ came. What is the purpose of the incarnation? We saw that from 1 John chapter 4. I'm reading that from a catechism, which is basically a systematic response and a question-answer format to what the Bible already teaches with many references. I'm wanting you to understand why did Christ come? Why did he condescend? Is it merely to give us an example? There are many people who think that Christ came just to be an example Did he? Yes, that's true. But that doesn't help anybody if it stops there. All that tells me is that I can't, I cannot earn my salvation, that I'm not, it just helps me see by the light of his glory that I am dark and separated and at enmity with God. It doesn't help me. I need Christ, I need God to do something more than merely give me an example. So what was the purpose if it wasn't merely to give an example to us? And there are many brothers and sisters and visitors here. I bet you if we went together, if you came with me and we went knocking on doors and just talking to people and asking them just gentle, sincere questions, why do you think Christ came as a man? Assuming they acknowledge that he's God and that he truly became man, and then we move from there and I say, why do you think he became man? Why did he ever come into this world? And people will uh, more, more common than any other answer that you'll hear is to be an example. You can word it in a whole bunch of ways. I need to do better because I need to follow Jesus and follow his example. That's true. He is an example to us. Peter says that in suffering and in many things. Philippians 2 in humility. But there's something more primary and necessary, and it says it right here. Matthew twenty, twenty-eight. And whoever desires to be first among you, I'm reading 27 first, let him be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So he came to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. A ransom is a purchase price where you, you pay for someone who's, who's in bondage, Typically, ransom can be used other ways, but typically it's used with reference to somebody who's in bondage of some kind. And the price to to secure them away from their bondage, like slavery, is to pay a ransom to them. There's a ransom price on your head to get freedom. And what Jesus says is, I came from heaven 
to be a ransom, meaning his people are enslaved. To what? To sin. We saw that earlier. His name is salvation. He came to be a man to save us from our sins. So he is offering himself up to God as high priest and both lamb. And he's saying, I'm their ransom. Set them free by satisfying your wrath and justice upon me. And not merely his passive obedience, but we also need his righteous life. So he was conceived because we need a holy life credited to us as we are in covenant with him. So, praise God that he who was rich became poor for our sakes, that we through him might, who were poor might become rich. The main point is that Jesus is able, brothers and sisters and hearers, to save your soul from your sins because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit in a virgin womb. And the main application is trust Christ for your salvation. Repent. Turn from your sins and trust this man and God, Christ Jesus, for your salvation and worship him. Worship him in awe. Let Spend enough time considering it to where your heart becomes melted before God that he would condescend to love you, his enemy, and once stranger to him. That's just the moral part. But think about the, the infinite to the finite. He did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, being in the very form of God, but may, emptied himself, humbled himself, and not merely for a season, but for all time now. Let it humble you as it ought to. When you see your sin rightly, you see the holiness of God rightly, and then you see the grace and mercy of God in Christ for condescending for you. Whatever humility you thought you had when you saw your sin and God's holiness, it causes you to, by faith, to become much more humble when you see that God loved you when you were not loving him and his enemy. And I'll say uh, uh, another application by way of um, wanting to spend a little bit of time on this would be Philippians 2. Um, If you turn there and we'll finish there. Uh, verse 5 is where I'll, I'll start. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him, given the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on the earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
that name he earned through reward in fulfilling his time of humiliation when he came and obeyed God and pleased the Father being upheld by the Father and by the Spirit throughout his ministry. And after his crucifixion, he resurrected in power and was given this place, his highest place of authority as the uh, mediatorial Lord. But we see first there was suffering. First there was humility. First there was condescension. What does it look like to have a mindset like Christ? And remember, always remember that you only get this mindset by trusting in Him. This is not a call to self-made humility. But when you turn to Him and trust Him, and you begin to reflect upon His humbleness, His humility in the gospel, you begin to be conformed into His image. And find your heart humble in affliction and in trial and in shame, in persecution. But what does it look like? I would say the first four verses. Fulfill my joy, in verse 2, by being like-minded, having the same love, and being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Here's here's something for you to take home. If you find yourself not esteeming others better and conceited, selfishly ambitious, you're not appropriating the truths of the gospel by faith. And you need to turn to the means of grace that in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through them, particularly this morning, the incarnation and the birth of Christ for you, that through your knowledge of him, through that work, your heart might be sanctified, humbled, and that in that humility, then you esteem others better. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Others-mindedness. Remember, Jesus said that in Matthew 20. He said, for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. He's others-minded. That's the, that's the nature of God's glory as it emanates out and then returns back. But it's others-minded. Even apart from creation within the Trinity. I'm not saying it doesn't return back and that God's effulgence and his glory isn't his prime or ultimate motivator, but what we see is this others-mindedness. And may the others-mindedness grow in you in humility through your knowledge of the incarnation. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray, Father, help us to recognize this as a fundamental doctrine, not merely that we be confessionally correct, but that we see in your word, it is of paramount importance that we see our salvation, Jesus, as our God and creator and our savior and mediator who became man for us.
that he might uh, bring us to you, that he might be the propitiation for our sins and be our ransom. We praise you for his exaltation and the fulfillment of his work. Uh, We praise you that we reap those rewards as your children and pray now that as we studied this this morning and preached on it, you would bless us by uh, humbling us biblically and with joy giving us an other's mindset to love. Amen.